This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back. This week, we are airing another episode of the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series in a conversation with Dr. Judith Kalb about the growth of online education and the technologies of virtual meeting. The conversation in this episode hit close to home for me. I've been teaching online since the pandemic. Many of us got our first introduction to Zoom, Google Meet, or Microsoft Teams in the context of the early days of the COVID-19 lockdown. But Dr. Cal was teaching online far before it became a thing. So I wanted to talk to her about what she thinks about these technologies and what they've done to us, whether they've changed us, and whether they'll stay, even as lockdowns and quarantines seem to be heading into the rear view mirror. How have our human interactions changed with the introduction and normalization of online meetings? How have virtual technologies transformed our relationship to one another and the information we exchange when we meet? What are the ethics of learning and the transformation of what it means to learn, to teach, and to interact with our colleagues, students, and bosses online? Dr. Judith E. Kalb is a professor in the Department of Languages, Literatures, and Culture at the University of South Carolina. She earned a BA in Slavic Languages and Literatures at Princeton University and a joint PhD in Slavic Languages and Literatures and Humanities at Stanford University. Dr. Kalb's research focuses on the interactions between Russian culture and the Greco-Roman classical tradition. Her book, Russia's Rome, Imperial Visions, Messianic Dreams, 1890-1930, examines the image of ancient Rome in the writings of Russian modernists. Her new project focuses on Russia's reception of Homer, an award-winning teacher and a pioneer in online teaching and pedagogy. Dr. Kalb enjoys introducing students to the incredible world of Russian culture and the larger European literary tradition of which it forms a part. And that's all for this season of Technically Human. We'll return with new episodes in April. In the meantime, check out our archive of over 100 episodes of the show, featuring conversations with thinkers, critics, and leaders across fields, industries, and from around the world about how we navigate our humanity in the age of technology. We'll see you in April. Hi, Judith. Hello. So Judith, let's start off by talking about the ethics and values in literature course or what is called Comparative Literature 150, uh, the class that you teach at the University of South Carolina. What is ethics and values in literature? And why did you feel that it was particularly important to create this class in the first place? Thank you for this great question. I, I'm going to give you an answer that is partly bureaucratic and partly substantive. And on the bureaucratic end, the idea for this course came to me when I was sitting in one of those faculty meetings where you're discussing different core requirements because the Carolina core is something that all our students are required to do. There are two um, categories in there. One is aesthetics and interpretive understanding. Another is values, ethics, and social responsibility. And my mind just started sort of pondering, huh, what if we could put these together, get two requirements filled in one class? And as a Russian literature scholar, that's what all the Russian writers are doing, right? I mean, they write about the big questions. Why am I here? What is the meaning of my life? And I thought, oh, we in the Russian program could do an amazing course. And then I thought, ah, 
realistically speaking, we are a tiny program. I need my colleagues in our larger department of languages and literatures and cultures. And how cool would it be to just bring in texts from all different traditions and talk about values in those cultures and in those texts and involve the whole department if possible. So that was sort of the the, the bureaucratic end. On the ideas end, I think that, you know, if you go back to Plato's Republic, where he famously bars the poets from the Republic, why? Because they have power, right? They can make people think. Why did the Soviets put Dostoevsky into a prison camp because he was using words and words have power. So, you know, words have power to be used in different ways. Literature has power. I was reading about the psychiatrist Jonathan Shea, who has used the Iliad and the Odyssey to help Vietnam War veterans because there's so much that they find of themselves in this ancient thousands of years old text. I think that literature has an incredibly important role to play in our society in helping people think, in making people aware of who they are, what their values are, in creating connections across cultures. So that's the larger vision for this course. <laughs> I love that. What do you teach in that class? Ooh, well, it depends who's teaching it. So <laughs> part of this thing is that we created, I created a library of lectures. And basically, I bugged, I cajoled, I begged, I pleaded with people in different areas of our department, French, German, Spanish, uh, Russian, obviously, because that's us. Oh, but just all over the department, Chinese, Arabic, just give me your favorite text. What major value do you see in there that you would want to do a lecture on? And then do me a lecture and give me discussion questions and give me a blog post about it. And I'm going to put it in my library. And that way, anyone who teaches this course has a choice of texts, of values, so that it's not something that is a, you know, one of these online courses that has been imposed from above, where it's sort of a soulless entity, where you bring people in with two weeks notice to just teach a set curriculum. This is an organic course and it depends, you know, of course, you know, as a teacher, what happens in any class is going to be different depending on who's teaching it and who the students are and the conversations and the ideas that arise. But this from the start becomes organic because whoever is teaching it is going to shape which values are discussed, what cultures are discussed through the text that they choose. I love my lecture library. <laughs> I'm thinking about what I might teach in that uh, course, Ethics and Values in Literature. And I guess my first criteria is what is literature? Is literature Plato? Is literature philosophy? Literature, as I teach it, is oftentimes fiction, but not always. What is literature in that term? Not always. We actually start with selections from Plato's Republic and from Tolstoy's What is Art? And the students are asked to think about writers and do artists in general in our society have a responsibility to try to change society, to speak out about things that matter to them, or do they not? Is it just entertainment? What should it be? And we read all sorts of 
works we read Martin Luther King letter from a Birmingham jail we read I mean when I'm teaching it and and that's one that I think everybody's done because that text is so stunningly powerful I you know um, we read part of the Aeneid we read Eileen Chang a Chinese 20th century writer we read a bit of Goethe's Faust um, we read Solzhenitsyn Russian 20th century we read Aldo Leopold 20th century American environmentalist all sorts of different different texts come together. You know, they build upon one another because often one author is engaging in a dialogue with someone else. I mean, we read um, Plato's Apology and Martin Luther King references that in his letter from a Birmingham jail. So you have these conversations and what I want my students to realize is they become part of these conversations. They are taking part. They are new voices and minds grappling with these ideas that people have been talking about for literally millennia. And I want them to know they're part of that. They belong in that conversation and they can then broaden that out and bring it to others. One of my students told me at one point, I was just so excited. He said that his dad knew how much he was learning in this course and his dad had come up against an ethical conflict at work and he turned to his son and he said, have you learned anything in your course that would help me with this? And I love that because I thought, yes, I want my students, you know, so many students draw a, a, a sort of line between here's what I do in school, here's what I'm required to do, and then here's my life outside of that. Literally, there have been students who go on study abroad, and when they're asked, how did this relate to your courses on campus, they don't even bring up their language courses. I mean, there's a disconnect. And what are we doing as educators when there's that kind of a disconnect? I think it's so important that what we're doing in class, that our students perceive it as helpful, as relevant, as enriching to their lives as a whole. And I'm just thrilled that students have found this course to give them that experience. Well, some of the values that you articulate as values central to the class are, and I'm going to quote your, your syllabus here, compassion, justice, community, love, uh, self-discipline, integrity, loyalty, commitment, self-discovery, happiness, and responsibility. Why focus on these specific values and what interesting ways do they allow us to have or what do they provide in, in allowing us to analyze our past, present, and future? Yeah, I think... You know, initially, my colleague, Lara Ducate, and I, and she's in German, and we sat down. She had done a lot with computer-assisted language instruction. I had not before this course, so she was incredibly helpful to me. And we just sat down together, and we talked about, we brainstormed, you know, are there particular texts that you would love to have in a course like this? Are there particular values you think are incredibly important that our students may or may not have been exposed to in a conscious, intentional sort of they think about it way. And so we just thought of some texts, we thought of some values. And then I, I asked people, because initially all the lectures were me before I um, cajoled enough people into producing lectures. So I was writing lectures on, you know, an Irish writer and a Chinese writer and a German writer. And, and I learned so much. I learned insane. It was incredibly challenging and very rewarding. But 
I just asked people, can you recommend something that you think would work for this course? And it just, it grew and people would suggest things. Sometimes a colleague would be coming up with a lecture and say, I think the theme here is, and it would be something just that I simply did not find remotely appropriate for the course. And I would say, why don't we talk a little more about what you find in this text that's so important and what you really want to share? And gradually the discussion might go from X to Y. But in general, people have um, come up with some great stuff. And um, I think that whatever of these values we discuss, it's almost... um, The process is as important. The way students are coming to this with intentionality, they are consciously choosing to look at particular values. And the way the course is set up, we have weekly discussion post questions, which are very text focused. Did you read this? Show me. Um, Use some quotes. But We also have a weekly blog post, which is where the student gets to talk about their own experiences. And indeed, this this pushes them to do that. For instance, when we read Tolstoy's Death of Ivan Ilyich, this is a, a story about the medical profession. I've had a lot of nurses, future nurses in this class, and that text really resonates with them. And the blog prompt for that text is, have you ever been in a caretaker situation? What was that like for you? Have you been in a situation where someone was taking care of you and your health? And what was that like for you? And the the things the students share are remarkable. A student whose mom was diagnosed with breast cancer right as he was starting college, he's her primary caretaker, and he shared that experience with us. And he said, you know, reading Tolstoy's text made him so aware of some of what her emotions might be. And it also made him look at his own experience more closely. And it's, honestly, I've been honored by the way students are willing to share these things. We read Aldo Leopold's environment, he's a 20th century environmentalist, and we read his land ethic. And he talks about the idea that when we think about community and the value for that week's community, Community for him is not composed only of people. It's also the land, it's animals, it's nature. And I asked my students in that week's blog post, do you have a land ethic? Do you think we should? What's your opinion of this? And I had one student who said, I don't have a land ethic. I'm realizing I've honestly never thought about this, but reading other people's posts, I'm thinking maybe I should have one. So I'm going to think about this some more. And I love that he was so open because they read others and they comment on others' texts. And I love that he was so open that he's willing to read. He's willing to think and engage with other people's ideas in a courteous way and actually say, huh, maybe there's something I can take from this. I've never thought of this. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about what's called an Anglophone literary scholar, somebody who teaches literatures in English from spaces primarily not the United States or uh, Great Britain, and somebody who teaches the texts of marginalized or underrepresented students. I've had people write on an evaluation. This is the first time that I've ever seen myself in a book or seen myself represented in a book. So I wanted to ask you uh, about the remarkable range that you include in your thinking and, and your approach to teaching ethics and values in literature course. 
And the course itself asked students to engage with a wide range of national literatures, time periods, literary genres, styles, and techniques. Why is it important for us to view major issues through multiple dimensions and lenses? What does it add to your classes? What do you see students getting out of it? What immediately pops into my head when I think about what you're asking is this amazing Nobel speech that Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian dissident writer, gave. It's in 1970. And I'm if if it's all right, I'll just I'll just quote briefly Please. from it because it's so powerful. And you know, Solzhenitsyn writes better than I do. He he's good. Uh, but he says, we confidently judge the whole world according to our own home values, which is why we take for the greater, more painful, and less bearable disaster, not that which is in fact greater, more painful, and less bearable, but that which lies closest to us. Everything that's further away, that does not threaten this very day to invade our threshold, this we consider on the whole to be perfectly bearable and of tolerable proportions. But, he says, art and literature can perform a miracle. They can overcome man's detrimental peculiarity of learning only from personal experience, so the experience of other people passes him by in vain. Art transfers the whole weight, the whole weight of an unfamiliar lifelong experience with all its burdens, its colors, its sap of life, it recreates an unknown experience and allows us to possess it as our. So art bridges things. And I, you know, at one point in spring of 2020, I was on a Zoom, in a Zoom class with my students and we had started in person and now we were in Zoom and and they were dealing with some big stuff. They were dealing with jobs, evaporating. They were dealing with study abroad evaporating, with fellowships evaporating, with family members who were very sick, with looking after people, with just having the, you know, the rug pulled out from under them in so many ways. And I had them reading this Russian literature short story that was, um, you know, this guy sitting in a hut in Russia a hundred years ago. And a few of them came into class and they just said, why are we reading about a man sitting in a hut in Russia a hundred years ago? You know, like we're dealing with our life right now. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So we started talking about, you know, why is the guy in the hut and what happened and da, 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 and what kind of resilience did he demonstrate and what skills did he use and what do we see in this text? And then we kind of shifted to, okay, so what challenges are you guys dealing with now? What kind of resilience have you been showing because you have, because here you are in class, because you have stayed kind with one another, because you have shown strength of character, because you have done this? So suddenly, <laughs> the student said, oh, I thought he was just a guy in a hut a hundred years ago, and now he might be me. And I was like, yes, 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 that's it, you know? So, so yeah, I, literature is powerful stuff. You know, to come back to what I said at the beginning, it's powerful stuff. And if it allows us to create an empathy, compassion, co-suffering, I personally think the world could use a lot more of that. Well, maybe that's something that I should ask you about because the goal of the class, as you mentioned on your syllabus, is so that, and I'm going to quote the syllabus here, students will learn to analyze and interpret literary texts that address questions of personal and societal values, i.e. moral principles that guide human behavior, decision-making, and defining and leading a good 
life. That idea of the good life is very interesting for me. I, of course, associate it with Plato and Plato's idea of the good life. But I think that you're using it here in a much more expansive way. What is the good life? I mean, that's the big question, right? That's how do we live? What is the meaning of our life? Why were we put on this planet? What is our goal? What should be our goal? And of course, the answer is going to depend to a degree on each individual, on each society, on each culture. But I truly believe there are some overarching themes. I think literature points those out and allows us to make those connections. I think people in all times and places have you know, wanted to be healthy, wanted to be happy, to have their families be well. They have wanted to feel they're engaging with others, that they're leaving some positive mark of their own on the world they live in. You know, think about the Epic of Gilgamesh, ancient Mesopotamia, thousands of years ago. And what is our main character's focus? Eventually it's, well, what did my life matter? If I can't be immortal, what am I going to leave? And he says, you know, there are these big bricks. I'm going to make walls for my city. I'm going to do something that's going to last, that will have mattered. And here we are thousands of years later, and we are reading about those bricks. They did last, you know, and we can identify with his quest. If we're not always going to be here, then what's the point? And how do we grapple with that? And how do we create meaning? Mm. And I think that's the big, the big question. I'm going to give us a sixth sense moment here, the I see dead people moment, when I reveal that something that many people may not be aware of and that we haven't brought up yet in this discussion is that from the inception of the ethics and values and literature course uh, that you created, it has been a fully online course. A course that you started in 2016, which is years before we got real close and familiar with online or remote learning in March of 2020. Well, what did you intend to do in making this course fully virtual back then? I should say those courses are proved both for virtual and in person. I've done it both ways and it's, it's a different experience. But the reason from the start we wanted it to be virtual, I guess, you know, I couldn't just have two academic core requirements covered. I needed to get another approval process through a university bureaucracy too, right? But no, I, I felt like we have non-traditional students who are not available during, you know, our 8.30 to 5 teaching day. We have students who are coming back to school. We have um, family, people with family responsibilities. We have people who are not able to do that traditional course schedule. And I felt very strongly, and we also branch campuses that don't have a big department of languages, literature, and culture, and don't have a comparative literature program in which this course is housed. I felt like this stuff matters. And I want it to be accessible. I want it to be available to all our different kinds of students in throughout our state. I think that so often when you don't have access to the main campus and the courses that are offered during the traditional hours, you don't get some of the more creative, innovative courses. And I really felt like I wanted this out there for everybody. And I also felt really strongly that at this point, you know, there were these huge online courses being offered and there were, you know, people were talking about it, but almost none of it was happening in the humanities. And it seemed to me that 
it was only a matter of time before we would be told to do this. I wasn't expecting a pandemic, but I certainly thought administratively this would be, you know, why is math offering this and you're not? And I wanted to create something on my own terms as a humanist. I wanted to understand the process and create something I believe is pedagogically very sound and worthwhile before it was imposed on me. And I'm so happy I did, honestly, because one, I really love this course. I mean, I love it. It's incredibly fulfilling. But two, oh my goodness, I am so grateful that I had done it because (laughs) when the pandemic hit and everything switched, I knew what to do. I knew I could do it. I knew I could calm down some of my colleagues who were saying, but I've never, I was like, but you can, but you can, if I could, you can, honestly, really. So, but initially it was very much about access. You mentioned that you teach this class in both modes, in person and virtual. What happens when you translate it across that boundary? Does literary and ethical inquiry translate into an online course or what are some of the differences that you see in that translation? So I love in-person teaching. I love it. I have loved it forever. I feel that the classroom is a magical place and this alchemy occurs where, you know, ideas and and just, you know, people's expressions on their faces or a laugh or, you know, it all just kind of comes together in this magical brew. And I love it. But I think it is actually equally powerful to do this course in a virtual classroom. And it's not the same, but what has really blown me away is one, people's openness in our discussions online. I break the group up into mini groups, about eight to 10 students in each. So these are the people they're going to be interacting with and commenting on and sharing with. And they seem to get in a lot of the groups, not all, but in a lot of them, they have said they feel closer to that group of people whom they've never met than they do to plenty of people in their face-to-face classes because they're really sharing with them. And a number of them have said, and not just to me, but to colleagues of mine who have taught this course now, that the online format, somehow for them, it felt much more comfortable sharing stuff. Things they would not have been comfortable bringing up vocally in a room full of people looking at them. They somehow felt they had the safety to write it to this group of people, small group of people. And I find that fascinating. I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know what to expect, but that has been a consistent theme each semester that we've offered it. So here's a question about the context of teaching literature specifically in remote learning. And I'm thinking kind of theoretically about this. Literature is, in a sense, uh, all about remote learning, right? And what I mean by that is that the nature of our object, this thing called literature, is about building identification and relationships from afar, creating, in a sense, virtual worlds inside our head. These worlds that we imagine exist from these scribbles on pages and then we animate in our minds as kind of these virtual entities that we suspend our disbelief in to inhabit as long as we're in the text. We read stories about fictional persons, people we will never meet, whose lives we can only know. Uh, virtually through these hyper-mediated forms called books. And I'm thinking that maybe distance or remote learning maybe actually enhances or reproduces something about the reading experience itself, or does it? I realize this is a kind of theoretical question, but I'm curious, what's your take? I absolutely 
love that concept. I mean, books are one of the earlier technologies, right? So they, instead of just being able to sit down in a conversation with someone, suddenly you're reading about something in a different place, in a different time, and books gradually become more democratically available. I mean, it is sort of an earlier version of what we're seeing now in so many ways. But I love this idea that literature is sort of a, an earlier um, example that continues of a mediated interaction. And of course, our imagination is always right there as, as the, the processor. Yes, I think that literature does provide us with a model for approaching others through a lens, be it one of time and space or one of technology, because literature demonstrates that we as human beings are capable of feeling connections to people distant from us. And what an important message that is, right? Because we as humans can connect with people different from us. That is so fundamental. It is so obvious. And yet I think it is something that we lose sight of every day in contemporary political discourse, for example. We have that ability. Literature shows us a way. And so to discuss those issues of kind of connectivity among different people, when you're in another sort of meta example of that in an online classroom, you know, you have to be very intentional about it. But I think it's just another level, right? It's just one more layer on this ongoing way that we have. We have, in a sense, created for ourselves or been given additional ways to connect. And much as they are sometimes used not in productive ways, ideally they can be, and we can get the positive out of these modes of technology and use it to enhance rather than detract. That, of course, is always the big question. In the before times, I use the before times as a term to mark the, <laughs> the time when we were mostly in person. Uh, I taught a course called Distant Suffering, where I asked that question of how we can know or understand the lives of distant others when narratives of their suffering travels to us from afar, especially and increasingly through hypermediated forms, not just literature, as traditionally might have been the case, but also, for example, Facebook posts about devastation in Syria that appear on your Facebook timeline, oddly juxtaposed to more banal first word commentaries uh, about our lives here. So a picture of a woman with her house bombed out in Syria next to uh, or directly above or below a post about some friend who has gone to get ice cream uh, and is eating <laughs> that ice cream. Or for another example, Twitter news that something bad has happened once again somewhere in the world uh, with a kind of extremity that we can only imagine right next to somebody's um, cat meme. So what does that mean to imagine the lives of others as the humanities often ask us to do when our peers and teachers and colleagues themselves can only be known to us technologically through hypermediated forms? Do we lose something when we can't uh, connect face to face. I mean, my experience, you know, sometimes on Twitter suggests that when we are removed from one another's reality, when we don't have to acknowledge that embodied reality, we may lose a sense of our kind of ethical obligation toward the other. But literature seems to teach us otherwise. Literature seems to teach us that there actually is a way to engage our uh, empathetic, imaginative faculty 
to understand the lives of others. Is literature a good proxy or even a prototype of this kind of empathetic faculty and a way perhaps beyond the more uh, vitriol-driven form of technologies that remove our humanity from uh, connection to one another? I absolutely believe that it is. I truly do. You know, to go back to that that Solzhenitsyn quote, we, I, I think that empathy and compassion. I, I had a, a graduate student at one point. She said to me, what's your favorite value that we've discussed this semester in this course? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I, I like all of them. And she said, really? You? I said, yeah. And I said, what, what do you think? And she said, you? Compassion. Are you kidding? And I realized, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so true. Yes, that is the overwhelming one for me in creating this course and what I hope to see my students develop within themselves. Um, yeah, ideally, as humanists, we can encourage our students to think more broadly about other places, other cultures, other people. And that way, when they come across that thing on Twitter, their eyes don't just glaze on over. They actually say, oh, and there is more of a human connection. That is my idealistic you know, dream of how things should be. But, you know, I mean, like the Vietnam was the first war to be televised, right? And people suddenly realized what it was. I mean, I do think that technology has a way of shoving things in our face. I mean, to sort of flip the question on its head through technology, even a short clip posted to Twitter, we actually see something that we wouldn't otherwise see. So I think it's in the way we approach and that's where I think we as teachers can actually ideally just create um, more awareness and more empathy, compassion. You know, one of the things that's coming out for me in these conversations uh, convened for the series on ethics and technology is that when we're talking about ethics and technology, we're not just talking about the way that we can provide or create an ethical metric to evaluate our technology, but also the ways in which technologies may be changing or shaping our ethics and our values. And I wonder if you could talk about that or what you see in, in the digital remote learning context. What, if anything, do you see changing or transforming about our ethics, our values, our relationship to one another, which I think is one one definition of ethical engagement, and to information too in a digital context. Have you seen human interactions, human ethics, human relationships change with the introduction and normalization of online meetings and remote learning? I am much more of a person who prefers to have a conversation with somebody. Um, and I've always found it a little odd when I'll be sitting in my office and someone emails me when they're across the hall. I think ideally we do communicate best as human beings. On the other hand, though, I think that there are ways that we have been able to come closer together because of technology. And I think that's very important. And it is important from an ethical standpoint. One thing, for instance, is in the classroom where the student who felt very uncomfortable speaking up can simply write something in chat. And suddenly we just opened a window through technology, literally opened a window, that wasn't there before. And I've been trying to think, how am I going to bring chat back into my in-person classroom? How can I replicate that sort of spontaneous and 
unselfconscious way of participating for a student who is simply not going to be happy putting that hand up or spitting something out. So I do think it's a mixed bag, but I worry that with our increasing comfort with this mediated closeness or mediated connection that somehow that isn't sort of how we were constructed as social beings. But then again, it's been a total blessing over the past couple of years, right? I mean, and think of all the times we have been able to get together virtually when we couldn't have family connections that wouldn't have been there, participation in events. So it's a double-edged sword. I think though that with the pandemic in particular, we have really seen so many ethical issues come up in terms of technology. We have seen the issues that always have been important in terms of education and access. We have seen these issues just grow with the pandemic. And that is concerning to me. For instance, should I require cameras to be on? I cannot stand it when students have their cameras off. I do not like talking to a box. I rely in my classroom on looking at students and reading where they are. And when I can't do that, I feel like I'm floating out there in the ether and I don't know where I am as a teacher and if I'm getting through. But can I require that? Can I ask someone to? What if they're not comfortable with where they are? What if they don't have enough internet to be doing that? You know, these issues come up. What about... um integrity, cheating. What do we do about that? How do I, in a course on ethics, I certainly lay out what I expect, what's amazing. And as I'm sure you well know, research is showing that students generally often have not thought about the ethics of whether or not to document references, whether or not to cut and paste from the internet. Have we as faculty always thought about fair use and what we can be putting into our sites? Right. So, so these issues come up again and again and again. How do we build community in an online class? It takes intentionality. It takes care. It takes tons of time and planning, which our administrators are not always aware of and for which we do not always have the resources that we need. How do we know how our students are doing when we can't just like look at them or meet with them briefly after class? And, and, you know, that the whole big issue of internet access is so huge. So there are all these big issues. And and one thing we've been doing at the University of South Carolina um, is that our College of Arts and Sciences actually formed a task force to really talk about these issues of the integrity of online education. Mm-hmm. How are we delivering our courses? What are the ethical issues that we need to grapple with? And I have amazing colleagues, Christy Friend, Claudia Benitez-Nelson, Lydia Frass. They are just amazing. And they think about this and they have guided us through these wonderful discussions where we have really been trying to figure out how can we best serve our students? We are a public state institution. How do we serve the population of our state? How do we provide a product that is, you know, equally of equal value as an in-person experience? And what is our responsibility to do that? And also, you know, so much of the discussion of online tends to be that it is economically expedient to do it. You don't need classrooms. You can dump a bunch of kids into one class and, and you can just get grad students to, you know, or non-tenure track faculty to just get paid $3,000 or $4,000 to teach an entire course. 
And what we've been saying as a committee is no, 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 no. These courses take more planning. They take more time. They require more resources. They need people who are invested in them. This should never be a solely economic decision because the academic and pedagogical integrity needs to be there as well. We were talking before we started recording about the nature of this podcast, which came out of a constraint. And the constraint was me teaching my first class online. Unlike you, I had not been doing it since 2016. And uh, unlike you, I had no good pedagogy or way to think about it. But I did know that I didn't want to spend long uh, hours uh, on Zoom uh, with students without really knowing what I was doing. And I did want to be very careful about the equity issues. And so out of that, and with an awareness of a particular value that I hold up as pretty prominent, which is the value of civic discourse and the value of conversation and the yes, value yes, yes, of yes, having yes. conversations with people who are unlike you to um, work out and to refine against different points of view, a kind of dialogue that gets us closer to the truth and that allows through the friction of different ideas to create, I think, uh, something that is more informed than an idea without the critical distance um, that remains uh, in our mind or in our solitude if we don't talk to other people. And I'm wondering, you know, among all of these debates and amid all of these challenges, were there any innovations or any unexpected things that came out of the constraint of online teaching in the moment where all of the interactions were online? Were there products or processes or things that were newly illuminated for you that surprised you? I was surprised by how possible it is to have substantive discussions that matter to people in an online format. It really can work but again, it takes stunning amounts of intentional planning and caring and time. Also, what really came up for me has been the challenges that I hadn't really, you know, it's one thing if you take an online course because you feel like taking an online course. It's another if your whole life shifts and you're forced to do everything online. And what do you do with that student who simply does not cope well in an online situation and yet has been forced to do everything in that format? How do we approach those students? How do we try best to meet the needs of our students? We always do that. But so many more questions when you're suddenly dealing with an overwhelmingly online educational experience. I think that there has been an incredible sense of relief among our students this fall to have many of their courses back in person, which has what has happened at the University of South Carolina. I know that has not happened everywhere, but there's still some trauma that students are working through. It, it, it isn't that once you're back in person, everything's just great now. There's been a lot of stress and distress this semester that simply hopping back into more or less what people are used to has not taken care of. We have ongoing results. You mentioned some of the ethical challenges, or at least the ethical conundrums that you find yourself in in online learning, to, to cite one example that you gave, your need to see students versus the need to respect 
their privacy or whatever constraints that they're operating under that may not allow them to either feel comfortable or to have the means to show video. Can you talk about some of what you have learned about an ethics or how you have composed maybe an ethical framework for thinking about online learning? Are there certain ethical tenets that come up for you? Yeah. I feel that my classroom, whether it is an in-person place or a virtual place, is always a place of respect. I respect my students. I expect them to respect one another. And and I expect interactions to reflect that respect. And that means trust. I will tell them at the beginning, I would love to be able to see you. It makes me happy. And I think I do a better job if I can see your face and know if I'm getting through to you. But if you have concerns about that, please just write to me or we can set up a time to talk and let me know what you need and what's best for you. And I've had students who will literally, you know, someone will write to me for a class and say, I'm taking a mental health break today. I don't want anyone looking at me, but I'm here. I'm listening. I'm engaged, but you're not going to see me. Or a student saying, I'm in bed with COVID. I'm not turning my camera on. No one needs to see this, but I didn't want to miss class. Or the student who, (laughs) when I was doing a review session, mainly for most of my students, but then I had some people from other Russian language sections coming, and he just wouldn't turn on his camera. But he he had a question. I wasn't following the question. I said, wait, can you just turn on your camera? And he said, no, ma'am, I'm not dressed right now. And I said, okay, okay, please keep the camera off. That is, thank you for that information. Um, yes, please rephrase your question and I will try again. You know, there's that, that one I wasn't expecting. Um, but yeah, I, again, you know, meeting them where they are, how they are, in whatever state they are, and what's going to provide the best educational experience for them. And if somebody is going to be miserable sitting there observed, well then no, they shouldn't be observed. But I tell them, you got to be on the chat then. I have to know that you are there and present and actually focusing on the course material. You can't do the, you know, turn off the camera and fall asleep or go make mac and cheese. Like, no, 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 no. It's you got to be present. There are different ways of being present. I respect what they bring. So then if we were to pull some of this together, you know, I'm wondering because I should cite some more facts about the success of your program, which is that in 2002, according to Global Education News, you and your partner launched the only Russian major in the state of South Carolina at the University of South Carolina with just three instructors. And with those just three instructors, the Russian program of U of SC is ranked fifth in the nation by the Chronicle of Higher Education in the number of students majoring in Russian. So you've built a really successful Russian program and an incredibly successful online course. What helped you to create such a successful program? And what advice would you have for others who are looking to build an influential initiative at their university from the ground up? What makes something like the initiative that you launched succeed? Thank you so much for that question. So my colleague, Alex Ogden, and I are the two professors, and we're fortunate to have an instructor as well. I think that what's so important, first of all, is you must be passionate about your subject. How are you going to sell something to someone else if you don't care about it? 
Um, I think in Russian studies in particular, during the Cold War, there was this sort of built-in audience for people taking Russian classes. It was always present. I would argue that it absolutely still should be. But certainly when things changed in the 1990s, there was this feeling of, oh, wait, what do we do? And it always seemed to me, love what you do and market it well. I believe that it is truly important for American students to know about Russia, to know its language and culture. We teach students who are going to be diplomats representing the United States. We teach students who move into national security jobs. They're going to be making decisions that affect people's lives. We teach people who are going to be international business people, international lawyers, teachers. So we do believe what we do matters. And then I would say just in terms of anything that you're building, be organized, look for potential customers, market what you do, but provide a good product. Stand behind what you're doing. Students in our program know we care about our students. We care about their education. We care about their progress. If they need a letter of recommendation, they are coming to somebody who knows them and can really speak to their abilities as opposed to an anonymous person in a massive, you know, lecture class. Um, so I guess we just really believe the individual matters. And at this very large institution, we have tried to create a small college feel in our program where our students know that they are known and they are cared about and they matter. We work closely with the South Carolina Honors College, which is the top ranked public honors college in the country. And um, they are amazing. And they have that small college feel within a larger place. A number of our students are honors students as well. So it's just a, a matter of making sure people know they matter. I guess that's what it all comes down to, right? I mean, through the literature, we learn that. In program <laughs> building, we learn that. It's the human. <laughs> now I'm curious, is there a thought or an initiative underway to expand the ethics and values and literature model of online learning in the way that you're teaching it um, to a broader kind of initiative or a broader frame of online education? If so, how would you build that out? What would that look like? Where would you start? What kind of courses would you put in that framework? So I have had this lovely time thinking about this. Um, I feel that there are all these courses across our university in different areas that have to do with ethics. There's medical ethics, there's legal ethics, there's philosophy, of course, there's journalistic ethics, there's just all over the place, we got ethics. But wouldn't it be interesting to create, say, a minor with online courses in these different areas, the humanities, medicine, journalism, et cetera, and have a minor of study where people were actually just studying this from different, from the vantage point of different fields. Another thing I was thinking about, we have this amazing program, Graduation with Leadership Distinction, which has different tracks that you can do. And there are things like professional and civic engagement, global learning, diversity and social advocacy. What if we had one in values and ethics? And people could be coming from all these different places. There would be a couple of required courses and various other recommended things that one would choose from and experiences. There's, there's an experiential part to that degree as well. But I think that there are ways that we could integrate this in a broader way. And I also think the model of having, um, 
a literature class that is drawing on the expertise of people throughout the department. I would love to see that kind of a course. I would love to see one that introduced students to different languages, do a week on this one, a week on that one, learn about them, see what you might like to do. Sort of gateway courses for individual departments so students can kind of taste stuff and see what they think. We've had kids who uh, will take the Complete 150 class and they fall in love with ideally a Russian literary text, but you know, it, it could be another. And and they end up wanting to take something else in that area. I think that's fabulous, you know? So ideally you're creating something that will encourage further learning and further growth. In this class that you teach on ethics and values in literature, which is a class that you teach online, do you ever ask students to meta reflect about the possibility that, you know, they may be reading that piece of literature on an ebook or that technological processes are now part of the literature that we read? For example, there is a book by a novelist that recently came out as a series of tweets on Twitter. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> Do you ever engage those kinds of questions with students or uh, do they do any meta reflection about the ways in which literature and technological production and the values and ethics that swerve between both of those things are now kind of uh, anchored in one another or interpolated? You know, it's funny because, well, I've certainly done the reverse, which is in a face-to-face class, say we're reading Anna Karenina and I asked them to tweet the section we just read. Just like, I want Twitter names. I want you to sum it up. And it's sort of a way for them to like take this thing that was written in the 19th century and put it into a contemporary idiom. And it's a fun exercise to just sort of play with form and genre. Um, So that's one piece of it. But I'm sitting here thinking that I absolutely want to build into Complet 150 a text that would address precisely this issue where we would all need to grapple with it. And if you have suggestions from your own area, I would love to hear them because I think that would be incredible to just make the students absolutely aware through a literary text of these particular issues. I love that. Thank you. That gives me <laughs> such fabulous food for thought. Well, I guess it circles back too to the beginning when we were talking about that definition of that key term literature to begin with. And as you were talking right now, one of the things that popped in my mind is that, you know, increasingly what we think of as literature is also not just literature written by human beings, but but potentially literature written by AI, literature written by technology. And I say that and people say, oh, that's very science fiction-y or, you know, oh gosh, bots writing screenplays of Frasier. And that's a meme because they get it so fundamentally wrong idiomatically and in terms of what the uh, forms are. But then I remind people that every single time they compose an email on their phone, their phone's AI will predict certain text for them, or it might change a spelling to uh, clarify meaning. And that the idea of AI creatively dictating or directing our literary aptitudes is not the uh, apparatus of a science fiction or not the premise of a science fiction novel, but actually very much with us. So Absolutely. <laughs> how would you think about literature and technology and the ethics and values of that in terms of literature created by technology? 
that is shouting out to me, blog post, blog post, blog post. <laughs> is literature written by a computer still literature? Defend your position. I mean, I think that is such a marvelous thing to be thinking about. And I love the sort of layering of studying literature itself, a text that is interpreted through another kind of technology through a computer, and then layering onto that the question of whether the literature itself can be created by that. Oh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. We'll use. <laughs> well, well, but then I go back and forth about it because one of the things I think we value about literature is not just whether or not we are pleased by reading it, but in a sense, literary value is constituted by things like recognizing human creativity and genius and authorship and all of those kinds of values. And I wonder whether when we see a piece of literature created by AI, we still can acknowledge those kinds of things as values for us or whether or not our appreciation for authorship and genius and creativity is not something that we're willing to attribute to a to ai is it literature when it's written by ai what do you think so for me on a very gut level that human component is crucial i love connecting with, as I was saying before, being a part of a chain of people discussing ideas and putting them into given forms. I think it's part of what makes us human. And so the idea of turning that over to a machine troubles me at a very deep level. On the other hand, as you say, it is there already. So at least I would be interested in hearing, what do my students think about this? Where are they? Where is their generation as represented by them anyway, feeling about that idea? I'm very curious because for me, it is a very clear human beings need to make it, but that doesn't mean it is for other people. And these things change and change and change. So, you know, if, if we get, went from oral tradition to written tradition, and where do we um, assign authorship in those circumstances? How do we? I just don't know. And isn't it, in a sense, a product of human ingenuity if there is the possibility of creating something through AI? So again, for me, gut response, people. But intellectually, I have to make myself look at the rest of it. <laughs> We're coming to the end of our time. So I want to make sure that I ask the two questions that I'm trying to ask everybody in the series. The first of those two questions is really about the context of the series, which is thinking about the role of the humanities and humanities driven inquiry in the context of technological culture and production. What value do the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition play or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and thinking about what it is that we do when we envision, design, and create technological products? I so appreciate that you're asking these questions. I think it's so important and I think it isn't done enough. So thank you for that. For me, I think we need to ask ourselves, what is the point of what we're doing when we create new technologies? Is it just because we want to go do that? Or is it actually 
does it have a different ultimate purpose? And I would hope that at least a leading reason is so that we can help people lead better lives, be it in terms of their education, their health, their environment, whatever it may be. And that brings us back to that core question, one that, you know, the writers I love have focused on so eloquently, what is a good life and how do we lead it? How can technology be a part of that question? And humanities training in humanistic disciplines allows us to have those conversations, the conversations that just fundally, fundamentally matter when we are creating new technologies. One final question. This series, of which this episode is a part, is titled 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. What one core lesson do you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? You know, I hear this question and I immediately think of the famous journalist Edward R. Murrow with his 1958 speech on television, where he says this instrument can teach, it can illuminate, it can inspire, but only to the extent that humans are determined to use it to those ends. Otherwise, it's nothing but wires and lights in a box. And that's it, right? I mean, it's a different technology, but the basic issue stays the same. I would hope that we in the educational field will use technology in the best ways it can be used rather than the worst. And I mean that both in terms of content, what we convey in our courses, and in terms of how are we making this available in terms of access? So both, how do we help our students build awareness of what matters most to them, of their own ethical systems? And then, to whom is this material? Are these conversations available? Are we doing all that we can to make sure that it is available to all who want to be there as part of the conversation? I think that we must never lose sight of the human as we expand these technological borders. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Elise St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie Caulfield-Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.